Before we start today's show, I want to give a shout out to our partners for this podcast, Vitality. They are an essential part of me being able to facilitate these conversations. I've been an ambassador now with Vitality for several years and always the one thing that stands out most for me is just how much they care about people's health and are so keen to enhance their experience of life whatever way they can. They understand as much as I do. I think it's never about quick fixes or the one pill fixes everything. It's about the small, healthy, proactive behaviours sustained through a lifetime that can lead to incredible differences. Not only does Vitality protect members with award-winning cover, but they also offer discounts on gym membership, trainers, activity trackers and healthy food too. So you can take the small steps to make the meaningful changes. Head to vitality.co.uk for more information. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, welcome back to I Am, the podcast that explores the possibilities and potential that we can access as human beings. I'm your host, Johnny Wilkinson. Charles Eisenstein is a really interesting guy, someone with a very different and humble way of seeing things that holds, I feel, big possibilities for our planet and for ourselves. He was really open and unassuming as well, which made him so easy to connect with. Despite his busy schedule, traveling around the world, helping people through his talks and his thought-provoking exchanges and ideas, he found the time to chat with me. and We discussed a whole load of stuff. If I had to pick out the bit that's really stuck with me though above all the other fantastic parts, then it would be the discussion around the liberating power of humiliation and its very important role in our growth and in the unlocking of human potential. Just to let you know that I always release an episode early in the week, a few days before the main guest interview becomes available. And in this sort of 10 to 20 minute slot, I attempt to share some of my own ideas and thoughts as well. I can get pretty intense about this sort of stuff, so I'm going to warn you ahead of time, I can go off on one. I'm really enjoying hearing from anyone listening in, so if something arises in you, thoughts, feelings, do not hesitate to email me on hello at iampodcast.co.uk or just leave a comment in the review section on Apple Podcasts. Today, though, it's all about the guest and a chance to hear their wisdom, their learnings, passions and stories. And I do love this bit. I love being part of it. I hope you do too. Charles Eisenstein, thanks so much for joining us on this podcast. It's a real pleasure to have you here. I'm excited about uh, getting into some of the depth of what's going on in your world and, and what uh, you're uncovering uh, within your experience. So, yeah, really, uh, really excited. Thanks for coming on, first of all. Yeah, happy to be here and looking forward to it. Can you give us a, a little bit of background as much as you want to share to, to kick things off? Why do you think you're looking at things the way you do? And in terms of what you're looking at, how would you frame human potential? What comes to me immediately is that the possibility that is narrated to us by the system of ideas and beliefs that we live in is very narrow. And that I've witnessed aspects of human potential that are much bigger than what we are told is possible, which is good news because if we are limited to what is conventionally accepted as human potential, then the situation is pretty hopeless. What is holding us back and why aren't we breaking it? What's it going to take to break it? I love this idea about human potential. It's, it's, it's the unknown, it's the unseen, but then surely what's holding us back is what we think we know and are so sure of. Yeah, that's... Definitely part of it. And what can puncture that 
bubble of false belief very often is called humiliation. It's, <laughs> which is something we try to avoid at all costs, but it's actually yeah. a good thing if it yeah. makes you humble. If it gives you humility, that's what humiliation is. And when that happens, then you know that you don't know. Whereas before, you didn't know that you didn't know. And when you know that you don't know, that empty space, that unknowing is kind of like a psychic vacuum that allows authentic knowledge to come in. And you consider things that you'd never considered before. This happens all the time when people have a medical crisis and they follow directions, they go to the doctor, they do as they're told and nothing works. And maybe even the doctor says, oh, it's just in your head. Our tests are showing nothing. And that is the point where somebody might seek out something alternative, something that, and maybe the results are positive and the doctor says, well, that was coincidence. And so that is in a sense, a humbling experience because you're like, wow, I thought I understood how the whole world worked. But any, any kind of miracle that invades normality can have that effect. And the thing is though, this is the next question is, okay, well, under what conditions do miracles invade normality? A miracle being something that is impossible from an old story, but possible from a new one. Like, when does that happen? Usually it happens when you are in a state of uncertainty. Like, have you ever had an incredible synchronicity in your life? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And when did that happen? Like, was it when everything was going great and you knew exactly what tomorrow or next week or next month would bring? Or was it when you were traveling yeah. or you would move to a new city or a relationship yeah. ended? I think it's definitely what, you know, what you're talking about there is for me, it was a sense of opening up and confronting the unknown almost. I remember one of the big synchronicities in my life was I remember being at a careers meeting when I was at school and basically I was just so into sport. I played rugby and they said to me, what is it you want to do? I said, I want to play rugby. It's not even a professional sport. It's like, I, I don't care. I, I honestly, it's all I know. It's what I want to do. And I remember sort of thinking, I was willing at one point just to be like, instead of trying to go down their route of being like, well, maybe I could do this. I walked out of there feeling like, I don't know what I'm going to do. And I'm okay with that. What I do know is I love this and I don't know what I'm going to do. And within a period of about two or three days and then later about a week, the game turned professional, one thing. And the second thing was a coach turned up at our school to coach who was best friends with my all-time rugby hero and at the time you're just like this is interesting but when you're sort of realizing and then that suddenly that just kicked it off and I am doing what I wanted to do but it came from a point where I was willing to sit there and say I'm all right with this I was open instead of trying to pave my own way past it I let that space be right yeah, so, so you had great faith in where you wanted to go. Yeah. But you had no idea of how to get there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 And that's the only way to get somewhere that we know exists, but we don't know how to get there. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, you can't give up on it. Then you won't get there. But you also don't have a plan. So you have to step into that uncertainty. And this is the situation on the planet right now. We have... I call it the more beautiful world our hearts know is possible. Like we, we know that it doesn't have to be this way, this human nature, the way of the world where half the world is in extreme suffering all the time, 
where we're destroying ecosystems left and right. Like we know that it doesn't have to be this way. And if anyone comes up with a practical plan, it is unrealistic. People send me these plans all the time. Here's my perfect economy, you know, and if only everybody implements this, everything will be great. I'm like, okay, so how are you going to get everybody to implement it? Are you going to write a manifesto and it's so brilliant that everybody will be like, oh, yeah, let's do that. And all the governments are going to change their mind because, oh, I hadn't thought of that. That's so brilliant. That's not how change ever happens. Like, basically, you don't know how the world could heal. Yet everybody knows that it can. And this is a different kind of logic. The logic that says, if it were impossible, we would not be here with all of our hopes and our strivings. And I'm going to trust that and make myself available to it and act courageously when the step becomes clear of what is mine to do. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's so big because that logic belonging to the create state versus the logic that belongs to the survival mode. And I certainly know that that humiliation you're talking about at the beginning, for me, took place, thankfully, I mean, the reason I laughed when you said it was because I was terrified of humiliation. And as banal and petty as it seems now, in my lifetime, I probably missed out on a thousand little shows I could have gone and seen because of audience participation. The concept of being called up onto the audience. I, and when I was in the ones that I did go and see, I was so petrified and hiding that I didn't even watch them. But humiliation took place, I think, when what I knew to be me and how the world worked, which was generated through fear, met a situational circumstance in life of which it couldn't advance beyond without changing. And I remember the big shift in me came when at one point I was like, I have to change because I can't get through this. And that humiliation was felt not through that kind of embarrassment, but felt through enormous suffering and still continues to be the case. It's how I face my evolutionary steps. My strongest ones, I think, are in the face of that humiliation of being like, look at me, I've been reduced to a, a shivering wreck. And it's that humiliation that says, when I said I need to change myself to move past this, I'm, essentially what I was saying is I need to unknow what I think I know and return back to that humility of being able to say, I don't know the way beyond this, but what I do know is what I want. And that's where I need to put my attention. But it seems to me to be almost like in those the films, I'm not sure if this is actually deliberate, but when people are walking in those films and they have to take the step and then the step appears under the foot. Yeah. It's almost that mentality. You can see where you want to go, but you can't see the path, but the path appears as you tread it. Instead of the other way, well, you want it to appear so I can tread it. You've got to take that step. And, and sometimes the step won't be there and you might have to go a different path than you even thought. I wrote an essay about that called A Path Will Rise to Meet Us. I think I wrote it in the context of leaving an abusive situation where what you say often comes up, like the situation becomes impossible. And you have to leave. And maybe you don't even know where you're going to spend the next night. You know, you don't know, like, what's going to, how am I going to feed my children? Like, you're stepping into the unknown. And when you do that, that act is kind of a prayer. It's a prayer of trust. And when you trust somebody or something, very often they rise to meet your trust. If I trust a person, they become trustworthy. Say we're in a tube station somewhere and I'm having a heart attack and I say, hey, can you take my child? 
like that's an enormous trust and you'll probably do it because I'm trusting you. So when we trust the universe by stepping into the unknown, by saying this situation I'm in is a no, I cannot stay here and I'm, I'm stepping into the unknown. That is a prayer. It's an act of trust and the universe, like the path rises to meet us. And it's also an initiation. You could also frame it in those terms. It's really interesting because in the world of professional sport, kind of acts as a real, quite an intense kind of nutshell version of this short career, loads of those judgment days where people so passionate and so often in that high achievement mode really want that marker of success on their name and their reputation. So every weekend becomes a judgment day where they're faced with that decision of you're in the change room and you want to know the result, but you know that the only way to get your true performance out is to, as we've said, you know, allow that trust. I use it when I'm sort of coaching players to kick is that you sort of ask the question, if you kind of had this sense of trust that what's going to come next, it's going to be beautiful. It's going to play out for you beautifully, beautifully chosen as a word. So it's not like you said, it happens every time, but in some way beautifully, how would you then engage in it beforehand and during it? And suddenly the posture finds itself. And actually, I love the fact that you said not always, because that's a mind thing saying, I want it always. But that's still an unknown to say, yeah, but not always. But what does generally happen is ball flies in a way that people, they can't work it out logically. It doesn't belong to the old logic of A plus B plus C equals D. It's like, that's come out of feel. It's come out of a sensitivity and a connection to an image that's then transcended time to be like, Jesus, how does that work? And I think that for me, for example, I've had that headstrong, massive mistrust. And as a result, I kept looking at what's happening now in the world and what's happened before. That's where I put my energy. And as I did that, I started to pave the way forward and I got less interested in my desire. But in those moments where I've just gone sod it, it's all about the desire. I haven't even had enough headspace to look around me, to go to my memory and those things. And it just seems to appear. It does seem to me that everything we do in this society is pointing everyone at historically how things have happened and then how things are happening around us now and what can happen and what this, and then asking people to be creative and take us somewhere new. I think a rugby game actually contains an awful lot of um, <laughs> the human experience and what we're talking about. So for one thing, often a game will be won or lost because you were in the right place at the right time. You can prepare yourself to be at the right place at the right time. You can prepare your strength and your skills, but you can't make that happen. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that you're like, okay, well, because it hinges on being at the right place at the right time, I'm not going to practice. I'm not going to get strong and skillful. Like that is a disrespect of the realm that we live in. So the preparation is also part of the prayer. Uh, it says, I actually care about this and whatever I know how to do, I will do it. And what I don't know how to do, I will be ready to respond when the moment comes. You know, there's an element of sport that is a game, which is on some level, you know that it's not that serious. Like it doesn't matter. It's not all as important as we pretend it is when we enter the playing field. But when you're in the game, that doesn't mean that you play it half-heartedly. I was, I was uh, an athlete as well. I was a, you know, a runner, track and field. In the race, you 
embody caring about it more than anything else. You run yourself to your very limit. Even as you know that it's not actually important and that it's just a race and it's just a game and no one's going to love you less or more. And if they do love you less, they didn't actually love you in the first place. Like, you know, all of that, but life is like that too. Like on some level, you know, we're all going to die and none of this matters, but that doesn't mean that we are supposed to act as if none of this matters. Yeah. Life is the same as, as a game in that sense. Like we are here to fully become everything we can be as if by taking the drama seriously, we evolve on a soul level by fully devoting ourselves to the game, whether it's a rugby game or a theater production or, or life itself. Like we're here actually to give it our all. I was enormously do or die about my sport, but there was also the understanding that towards a certain point in my career, what made me able to go a little distance was I was prepared to die as well. That the idea of me, I was happy to go so far beyond the edge that it, like that humiliation, I was willing for it to die, which gave me that extra yard where others were backing off from the edge. The point I think is really cool for me in that is that the idea of the structure of preparation, it's so, so big that it can get you into the ballpark of the right place and the right time. You know, you've got to know the rules, you've got to know the regulations, you've got to be physically fit enough, you've got to be all these things. But that last part, which is the biggest part, has to be that living relevantly to the now. Whereas the preparation is something you've maybe done a lot before. And I think in a way that for me is with some of the guys I work with now, you're talking about saying, well, when you're in the weights room, you've got to live that balance too. So you're still performing in the weights room because you've still got to have that openness because there's a right place and a right person to be in the weights room as well mm-hmm. and in training. And so it's almost like then it brings that idea that you live every moment fully as practice for the moment you really want to live fully. Whereas for me as a player, I was the opposite. You know, I would live so absently in the change room before the game, somehow thinking that was going to earn me the right to be present during the game. Whereas in fact, the habit over my career, what it did was drew me further out of the game. So in every moment, there was an opportunity to think self-defense, self-protectively about what about me if this goes wrong. That became almost crept up towards the surface more and more as I got older. Because I think I had an arrogance, you know, a self-importance of distinction about me being different to everyone else. And I had to then somehow protect it. And all it did was took me out that oneness. I wonder if that's where we're, we're heading a bit as a whole. Well, that would be one of the things that ends up in humiliation. Like <laughs> thinking that, that you're special yeah. and that you're exempt from the misfortunes that happen to others. You know, that's not true. So really what humiliation is, is the collapse of a false self-image. And that brings you back down to earth, which is what humility is, you know, brings you back to the humus, the soil, and all of the castles of pretense collapse. And then at least you're present to your real self. So it's a good thing. Another thing that comes up, I mean, I'm not sure if we want to talk about sport the whole time, but, you know. Just fire. Honestly, it's brilliant. I love the way that you've already shaped it. I want to see where you're going. Well, okay. So when you're fully committed to the game and you're doing everything you can to win, there's also things that you won't do to win. Like if you have a chance to, you know, bite off your opponent's ear or, you know, kick him in the balls. Like maybe some guys will do that, but you know that that's wrong to do that. So... 
there's some kind of respect for the rules of the game that also applies more generally, you know, to the game of life. We call that maybe morals or ethics. And where does that come from? That is a trace of what I said before, that we're here for some kind of soul evolution. Like the highest goal of life isn't the things that life itself presents us to win some kind of victory. There's something more important than winning the victory. It's the way that you play that is the actual victory. I just published an essay and I quoted at the beginning Ursula K. Le Guin. She said, the ends justify the means, but what if there never is an end? Then all we have is the means. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Do you know what, just speaking about that understanding of that inner environment of composure, which doesn't allow you to go to that space of harming others, it allows you to play the game without taking that into account. And in sports, it's quite interesting that as soon as you do that, you harm yourself anyway. You're trying to harm their team, you harm your own team. But all the best players had that composure. No matter how much you're trying to rattle them, you can't get in. Yeah, you might be able to physically do something, but mentally and emotionally, you just can't rattle that space of calm and connectedness. It's, it's interesting, you mentioned about the ends and the means. What if there is no end? I feel like a lot of my, and I, there's another thing I want to get into this as well, maybe before that, is what you were talking about in terms of that engagement and intensity about which we go about a game, knowing that it isn't actually going to go with us. You know, we're not going to take our little highlights video, as I've got, you know, carrying around in your back pocket just in case. You're like, it's not. But at the same time, when you're playing, and I wonder if some of that passion almost, that drive, is the passion and the calling, an actual inner calling of where I'm supposed to be, what I'm supposed to be doing, born to do this and born to express this. And it comes out in the sense of, geez, you know, like for me, I couldn't help it. I was in my car with a bag of balls in the boot. And I'm thinking, I don't even decided whether I want to go to the training field. And I've just parked up. Do you know what I mean? It's like, it's there ahead of me. And I wonder if some of that's what makes that happen is that there's a calling in us to, to engage at a level where, and maybe it comes out as feeling a bit life or death. Maybe I'll, I'll start with what you just said right before that about like this idea of you can't take it with you, you know, like your, your highlights video. Yeah. So the achievements of the game, like scoring a goal, something like that, those are relevant only in the game. And you can try to milk them afterwards, you know, by showing all your guests your highlights video and stuff. But <laughs> like, it doesn't really work that well, you know. And at some point, you know, a retired athlete realizes, okay, I've got to actually stop living the life that I'm already done with and live this new life right now. That's quite a transition, you know, especially if you've gotten all of your identity and self-image, you know, from the game. It's, it's a hard transition for some people to make, but eventually you make that transition. So that's, you can't take that with you. And the same thing, we, we realize this intuitively also in the phrase, you can't take it with you. Like you can't take your money with you. You can't take your power with you. You can't take your prestige with you. You can't take your impressive knowledge with you. Like that starts fading away even before you die. So the goals that we are directed to achieve, and I'm not saying those are bad goals, like even your accomplishments that help the world, the beautiful music you created, like you can't take that with you either. 
So what can you take with you? That's the question. And you can take some things with you, say from your rugby career, if you did cultivate that, what you were describing, that composure. Like that will transfer to something else, like a habit of presence or to maybe extend it beyond rugby, but even in rugby too, like a habit of caring about your team more than yourself. The habit of caring about a goal that you have in common with others more than your own glory in being visible as the guy who did it. That's something that, that happens in sports. And so in life too, this gets back to the means in the end. There are things that we can take with us that are like the habits and the things that we develop on a soul level. I, and I do this sometimes. I, I fast forward to my dying process and I examine, okay, what actually gives me satisfaction? Knowing that everything else is going to be gone and I'm about to enter a solo passage into an unknown. Like what actually feels good right now? And how have I prepared for what's next? And I'm not going to like necessarily go through the answers I get, but I'll leave that as something to encourage people to try. It's like, oh, that's pretty morbid, but it actually helps keep me sane and focus on the means more than the ends. This is why it's called the Tao, the way, you know, it's the way that you do things that you can take with you. I mean, I don't think it's more, but it's also something that, that was really big for me because I had a large period of injury in the middle of my career. And I mean, a lot of my growth has actually got nothing to do with my career. I just like talking about it because I think it's an easier sort of analogy to, to sort of bounce off. But with this period of injury, often I had two or three where I was told you may never play again. And I, I was brought forward, as you said, to that deathbed experience. I, I took it to the career death experience and sort of said, OK, I'm now at the end of my career. Maybe this could be it now. And if it is now, and someone says, so do you think you've used it well, was the way that I phrased it back in those years. And I looked, I thought, geez, not even close. I haven't, as you said, developed on a deeper level at all. I've just been shaping that surface level, which I've now realised to be so fleeting. So I then fast forwarded it to the, you know, hopefully what will be a lot later in, in life, the death experience. So it's the same question of what I'm doing now. The question is, so what's preparing me for this or what is worth it? And I think that was part of the switch that came along with several crises moments where that kind of structure of me was realised, you know, this kind of false image has to go. But that death experience, I think, as a young kid, I know lots of people do, I wrestled with it badly. I was obsessive, I was perfectionist, and a lot of that was because of it, but I think it was also through other things. Huge amount of fear driven in so many ways, passion and fear. But geez, the mortality idea, that I felt... I defended against rather than tried to contemplate. And as a result, it pervaded everything. So in the rugby thing, that humiliation was death and losing was death. And having those dreams were susceptible to death. And so I protected those. And because of that relationship, I could not even bring myself to talk about what I liked or enjoyed because I was opening it up to death. So therefore, when things went well, I felt unstable. When things were really well, I felt close to that doom. I felt the doom all the time, but especially when I felt people were propping me up, I felt unstable. And later in my life, I didn't know why, but I was walking around thinking, I feel dangerously positioned now. People praising you, talking about you in good ways. Things seem me okay. 
it was like, Jesus. So I would create all kinds of issues just to back away. But I wonder how important that that initial stage is for people, even if it's not at the initial stage, maybe later on, but also how on earth do you navigate that with young minds where you can't, you know, and I'm looking at it now because I have a child and I'm sort of thinking, okay, you know, this is a potential situation. I'm, I'm like, I've been exploring this whole scenario for years and years and through the spiritual world and the quantum physics and everything I can get my hands on. And I'm like, I'm still thinking, wow, it's big. So I love the way that you, you're obviously, a, you go into these things fully. I'd love to know what comes up in you for that. You know, sometimes <clears throat> nothing comes up. Love it. I love it. <laughs> yeah, I could make something up. But, you know, I'm not here to uh, perform smart guy, really. <laughs> That's such a cool answer. It's such a cool answer. Because even with me, I've said before that I would question to some people and then I'd no one to respond. And I'd be kind of like, oh, and I could feel myself saying I need to go there and say something first. And if I do, I could feel as soon as I did, I, it wasn't me. I had a friend who, who spent some time in a, in a Buddhist experience and said that, you know, the first thing they said, is, it seemed really powerful for me at the time, he said, I'm, I'm afraid. And they said, well, what are you afraid of? I'm afraid of well, death. They said, well, just die here then. Die here right now, you know, just, just die. And you're kind of like, geez, I got the impression that that's one of the first things they go to, to realise that to know that is surely to start to know life through that mortality, that understanding that we all get caught in that trap of thinking that, you know, how much further, we always plan so far ahead and it's probably a good idea to do so, but not when it takes away the intensity of this beautiful opportunity here. Yeah, many, many spiritual traditions have practices about visualizing your death because they understand that, as you said, that's what makes life precious. I mean, even when, when a loved one dies, you realize how precious they actually were. And the same when you realize that you're going to die, you realize how precious you are and how precious life is. And really, our entire civilization runs on the denial of death and the phobia of death. I mean, like you don't see death. It, it happens sequestered away in hospitals and nursing homes and hospices. Uh, you don't see corpses very often in the society. Very different, you know, other other cultures, it's not like that. People died at home, mostly up until very recently in most places in the world. So you could not so easily be in denial of it. Yeah, wow. We deny it with euphemisms. Mm. We deny it with this youth fetishism where like our ideal of beauty and perfection is a young person. Like all of the models, all of the billboards, you know, those are all young people. And we deny it also in more subtle ways, like through the association of money with self, like my money, my substance, as if you could be as permanent as your money could be, as if that is really security, with the idea of saving lives, which is impossible. It's actually postponing death, right? Which isn't a bad thing, like I don't want to die now either, you know, but but is that the most important thing to postpone as many deaths for as long as possible? But our medical system is geared around that. In this country, half of all medical expenditures happen in the last six months of life. And, and we have like these gruesome torture death rituals 
for people at the end of life, where like you hook them up to machines and they're suffering miserably for days and weeks and months, you know. I mean, this happened to relatives of mine. And then the distancing from death and the consequent ignorance of the preciousness of life also allows us to exploit and ruin and plunder the planet. It was behind like all of the COVID responses too, where like postponing death was more important than singing together or hugging or seeing each other's faces. Like everything runs on this denial, which on a deeper level comes in part, and I'm getting really metaphysical here, I hope it's okay, but it comes in part from a misunderstanding of who and what we are. If you think that you're just a separate individual, a meat machine, an ape-brained meat sack, then yeah, death is like the ultimate calamity. It's the annihilation of consciousness, of all that you are. And yeah, that is really our cultural belief. That's called science. Yeah, I, I was going to say, it, it feels really interesting that that identification on a physical level to body and mind as such and the individuality that comes with that at the root of all the issues of conflict and fear and all those kind of things and at the risk for what I feel like is is the human potential to perhaps to transcend those boundaries beyond time and space and whatever it might be it seems to be at the root of so many of our issues and yet we are in a society where from a young age, from an educational perspective, we're driving this. And from an advertisement perspective, we're driving this. And from a planetary perspective, we're driving the capitalist ideals of having it all and what have you. And yet we're asking for a planet built from oneness and miraculous opportunities. But that miraculous logic belongs to the oneness. I kind of, I'm in that space, I guess, intellectually of, of loving the occasional Eastern guru who can manifest things out of nothing. And I almost feel like I want to sort of be there to see it just so I can blow my brain away. Almost like it will be the turning point that says to me, now you've got no choice. Because I know in my own experience, when I've experienced things, I can't go back. In my own actual experience, I can't go back anymore and convince myself that, oh, it was just this, like we like to, if someone else tells us about their experience, we like to go away and logically sort of break it down to something which is actually pretty simple and and you know and not that great but actually when it's you it's real and I kind of want to see that thing that you know when I've got loads of friends that say I was there and this happened you're like I can't go there it's so close to making me go but I need to see it but we, we're driving this society that's saying we're almost reinforcing the problem but pretending we're looking for the solution yeah. Okay. So I, I'm I'm familiar with what you're talking about. Like, oh, I want to have one of those experiences because then I will yeah. actually know in my bones that I'm not <laughs> yeah. a, a separate yeah. self I'm in a mechanical universe. The thing is, okay, two things. One is you could have that experience and still question it in the same way that you question somebody else who's had it. You know, like a few days or weeks or months later, you're like, did that really happen? Maybe that was just some chemicals in my brain. You know, maybe that was coincidence, maybe it, that, that he was a fraud. Like, so you will never actually get that certainty by which you no longer have to make a choice. It fundamentally is a choice. Second thing, there's actually a, a wisdom, like an intelligence that 
only gives us the appropriate experiences for the soul's development at this time. So there may be a very good reason why you, your higher self, has arranged for you not to get the kind of proof that you are craving. Because what you are called to do is to choose without that proof, without that assurance. Because one of the things that does not make sense from the perspective of a separate self in a world of other is love. Mm. And anything that comes from love or generosity, like true generosity where you don't know if or when it's going to come back to you. True generosity where no one sees you give the gift. Nobody says, oh boy, uh, Johnny's really generous. Where you don't look good. Where it's a secret. Like, why would you ever do that? Yeah. To do that anyway is a, a choice that maybe it's for your development not to have the crutch of certainty because I've had that mystical mind-blowing experience. So I therefore I know it's okay that I'll be okay. Like maybe you make those kinds of choices and then that induces the kind of experiences that you're craving. Like maybe they don't come as proof they come as confirmation it's like the same mind form as the people who say as soon as i have enough money i'm going to start being generous (laughs) it doesn't work that way it's it's more the opposite when i start being generous then i will have money when i start doing the things that i would do from my best impulses that i would do when i have money then i will have money because the universe is like okay you're ready for it you're now occupying this state of being so the experiences that conform to that state of being then, then come to you. It's really interesting because that non-self-serving behaviour, serving that kind of previous idea, like I mentioned when I was facing those crises moments, serving the self would have been somehow conquering the situation, getting rid of it, solving it, beating it, avoiding it, whatever it was would have been like, well, at least I get to keep me going. But that non-self-serving thing, I think it's become, through this exploration, a part of the practice to the higher dimensions, whether it be acceptance, you know, kind of like total acceptance. I mean, that doesn't serve the self, if you know what I mean, unless you're kind of almost in that same mindset. We've spoken to someone about group intention and how group intention serves the intender rather than, as well as the intendee. But then you start thinking, yeah, but then it's almost like society gets hold of that and starts saying, well, I'm going to accept so I get this. And then it's no longer acceptance. It's no longer love, you know, when love becomes when I get this. And holding out that self-serving part. It's like meditation, you know. Beginning that path is a bit like, well, it's not working, is it? It's like, well, it's because it's not meditation. The meditative experience, I think, is in that space of I'm not asking. or I'm not expecting, almost. But, you know, I'm not saying, like, to deny yourself. No. You know, it's not like, okay, I could be selfish or I could be selfless. I could be stingy or I could be generous and I want to be this. So I'm going to try really hard and I'm going to overcome the part of me that it's not like that. It's like as one realizes what the self is and isn't, then when you're faced with these choices, you can ask, okay, what choice is really me? What is who I really am? What, what embodies who I really am and who I am becoming? And what actually feels good in my being. So it it actually is in a way selfish. And to take the example of contemplating death, 
you know, when you are fully aware of the fact that you're going to die, then selfishness turns into something else. Like imagine that you are 97 years old and you're going to die in one hour and you have an opportunity to make, you know, $500,000 right now. Or you could, <laughs> or you could give that $500,000 to some beautiful project that, you know, brings rugby to poor youth. Okay. Like in that moment, you don't have room in your coffin for $500,000. Like, like in that moment, because you know, you're going to die, what is selfish and selfless totally changes. Well, okay. That's kind of true right now. It's not, you're not going to die in one hour, but you're going to die someday. Like, have you fully integrated that fact? And have you fully integrated the truth of who you really are, which is not limited to a narrow, tight, little separate self in a box? And the more that we inhabit our knowledge that this is not what the self is, then selfishness changes. And like that whole struggle between selfish and selfless and stingy and generous and all that, that begins to unravel. Almost that deeper knowing that it's coming back rather than the surface idea of the, you know, when's it coming back? I, I should be coming back. It needs to come back. When I was looking for that outcome because of the contribution I made and it's almost like, well, it's not happening. It was so emotionally stop start and up and down and spiking but the times when you sort of feel like you've just done something and yes there's a deeper good feeling about it but there isn't this kind of surface level of what does it mean about me you know who's looking who can I tell will I tell people it drops me anyway into a certain I feel like a, a flowing deeper guided path almost of just feeling easier about the next moment that it's that trust I think that kicks in um, you mentioned about is it for me or is it for the other recognition of the feeling good and the how do you discern between those two opportunities is there a physical tangible way is it more philosophical or is it actually you know much more spontaneous usually it's spontaneous it's the result of a habit that's been cultivated but there are moments where it is a choice those are the moments that build the future habit and in those moments it's in the body and like, I'm not going to pretend that, you know, I necessarily choose the right way more than anybody else, but I am familiar with the feeling of like, this is the right thing. And it feels different in my body. And after I make the choice, if I ignore that, then I feel shitty. And that's important information. So then like, I'll allow myself to feel shitty and I'll like actually like feel that. Like I do this with food too, probably a lot more successfully with food than with other choices. Like, how do I know that something's good for me or bad for me? I mean, I could do it philosophically, as you say, I could read the labels and do the research and, you know, trans fats and this and that, or I could eat it and feel it in my body. And the more I pay attention, the more subtle awareness I have. And this is something that I have done very well. Like the other day we went to an ice cream store and I'm like, not going to be uptight. I'll have some ice cream, you know, come on, what's life about? And so I had some ice cream and uh, about an hour later, I just tuned in and I could feel it in my body and it didn't feel good. 
That doesn't mean that I said, I will never have ice cream again because it made me feel bad. It's simply that I took that information in. And as I've done this over the years, cake, cookies, ice cream, they don't even attract me anymore because I associate them like in, in my body, not only with the initial taste and the initial feeling, but with the entire experience of it that might go on for hours. So having integrated that, I, I no longer want to do those things. And so like the same could be said for cultivating other habits of choosing, but it's not to be a good person. That's not the goal. It's to make the choices that are actually you, that actually feel good. And you only know if they feel good if you kind of track them afterwards. That seems really interesting to me because it's almost like there's a two different models there that you've got the application and then the awareness, which is obviously subject to yourself and driven by your own desire to expand and grow and, and open or transform whatever it might be or success. But then there's the other model, which is built by the desire, like you said, to achieve a standard when there's so many opportunities out there to inform yourself from a label perspective. What are the specialists saying? What are the guys saying about compassion? The self-help books and the team speak for going in there and talking to a group and being like, hey, I've got some great phrases that will work on my team versus what do I want for my team? What do I want for them individually? How do I apply that compassion? And then my awareness of how it's feeling, how it's working. Surely that has a, a real bespoke nature as you said to even just what's happening in your life right now why it's happening why are you here why are we talking on this in this moment you know and all the things that are surrounding me and why is it all happening and to become that awareness i feel like that awareness as part of this human potential idea is so key and i know i've heard people say before that you know you can only experience what you're aware of and if you want to experience more of life you've got to become more aware of it it's so big but to understand someone talking about it it isn't awareness. When you hear awareness and you hear it spoken about, you then go and try and do that. It's not awareness. It feels like it has to be spontaneously triggered, this understanding, and it keeps deepening. But without it, I don't see a shift. But then how do you help someone to become more aware when I've been told as a young kid when I was playing rugby, you know, you should watch out for this. And 10 years later, I'm like, oh, I wish I'd watched out for that. It's like 10 years of doing the other thing. Because if we want this big change... As you mentioned, with awareness, we can start choosing to fill this habit opportunity box for the future me, where it comes easier to do these sorts of things, or I can fill the reactive habit box. And I've been filling the reactive one over and over again. And then all of a sudden, I feel like now I'm filling the unknown exploration box, and it's becoming more of a thing where I'm you know, it's gathering momentum. But how do you shift that awareness? And what is, you know, do you feel that's been a part of your journey? Well, so as far as like, how do you help other people become more aware? It's certainly not through repeating cliches and platitudes about mindfulness or spirituality or something like that. Uh, that's really annoying. <laughs> you know, I'm actually okay with a lot of my behavior being automatic and reactive. There's a reason why I developed these automatic reactions, like physical reflexes. For example, being careful when I'm walking across ice. Like, I'm fine with that. And there are also automatic patterns that are not bringing good results and that no longer serve me. 
So those are the ones that I want to bring my awareness to. You know, so like I might go on eating ice cream even when I don't like it anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Because I'm kind of automatically doing it. Or the birthday cake, you know, they pass around the birthday cake. And like if I pay attention and take a pause and ask, do I really want this? Then the answer is no. I don't want this. And this is not willpower that I'm forcing myself to stay away from something I actually do want. It's like, I don't really want this, but I might do it anyway if I don't take that, that pause and act on the habit of, do I want this? So I think that maybe that could be applied more generally. When, when you notice a habit, you know, and then you eat the birthday cake and you feel crappy. So you're like, okay, I'm going to bring attention to this habit. And so if there's something that you're doing in your life, like you said you had a child, mm. uh, how, how old? Four. Four. Okay. So like, suppose you notice that you are losing your temper with your child, a uh, boy or girl. A girl. Okay. It makes her feel bad, you know, and then, then, you know, she cries and then you feel terrible and you regret it. But despite that, you notice you're doing it again and again. Okay. That might be a situation uh, where you want to bring awareness to the automatic and ask, like, take that pause and is this going to feel good? I think, do you know, what? it's interesting because thinking about these things, when we were talking about the culture and the society, maybe the way it is, is that so much of it built also around maybe it be shame or, or guilt or, you know, I'm talking about the birthday cake, you know, I'm thinking about that as I know I not that interested in it, I don't really like it, but I'm thinking, oh, it's been handed to me, someone's made it, they've put a load of effort into it, and the voice in me is saying, I should really eat this. But the other voice in me is saying, I wonder where I can hide it, you know, where, where can I put it, I'll put it over there. And and you're kind of like, those, for me, feel like big opportunities to turn and face that space of, well, hold on, if I sit in this, if I say no, and then sit in that space of, Oh, well, here it comes. Here comes the, oh, everyone's looking at me. Oh, yeah, what what did that person's face look like? I think they're thinking this. And sit there and just go through the, I'm surviving this. It isn't what I think. But there also has to be, I think, behind the awareness, there has to be a willingness or a desire to move in a different direction. I'm wondering, for me, if that was that couple of those crisis moments or maybe that moment of the realisation in the career to be like, Jesus, this isn't working. All this suffering is not going to bring around that pot of joy like you mentioned the money or whatever it is, once I've got enough, I'll start giving it away. It's like the pot of joy is not going to arrive when I hit my retirement age and I've got the boat in the port. And that realisation makes you go, ah, that something pulls the, stretches it beyond the point of return and says, I can't go there anymore. I can't keep, you know, obliviously hoying into something, like you said, shouting at people, thinking that actually just because I sit on the sofa at night for two hours and feel like, oh, at least that's over, I can relax that represents what it's going to be like later in life once I've done my work. Massive questions, but why so much interest in something deeper than where you could go with the flow and make some money and buy up the material goods, the toys and everything? I was blessed in my childhood to be made aware of things that most people weren't aware of. And that kind of made the a lot of the rewards of the system not very attractive to me. Wow. You know, like I went to an Ivy League university and like 
I remember one conversation I had with a fellow student. I'm like, you know, we all know that these grades are meaningless, right? And I don't really care about them too much, right? We all know that, right? We're just playing this game, right? And he was like, no, no, they're important, you know? And it's really important to me to get good grades. Like he, he had bought in to a reality that I had not bought into. I just couldn't be bothered to do the things that I needed to do to be successful in the system. I just couldn't make myself do them. And like, I wasn't like so clear about it at the time. This unwillingness took the form of procrastination and laziness. I just couldn't make myself do them. And, and that doesn't mean, okay, so to return to the cake, you might be fully aware. I mean, this happens to me. Like I might be fully aware that this is not gonna feel good in my body and I eat it anyway and it's not out of a habit. It's because my mother-in-law would be horribly disappointed if I didn't have a bite of cake, you know, so I might do it anyway, but it's just not automatic. You know, the goal of life isn't to, you know, be as healthy as possible. Like there are other things that are important too, but it's about becoming sovereign over the choice. And that's what I'm talking about. It's the choices that you have not been sovereign over that are harming you and others and that no longer feel good. This is no longer who I am. Okay. Yeah. And so, yeah, like for me, you know, there were certain ways due to the fortune of my upbringing that I was more sovereign and other ways where I was totally blind and, you know, discovered that these ways of making choices, these shadow motivations, that's another way to do it. Like when you're not sovereign, then you're subject to some other power. And this is the shadow that is unconsciously dictating your choices. So like I, just like everybody else, you know, I have a lot of those too. And those are what end up causing pain and suffering. And at some point, if one is fortunate, you're like, okay, I'm done with that. Then there's that process of bringing awareness to it before the choice and after the choice and, and all that. And life, I feel for me was kind of saying, have this. It's like, I have to conquer it because I, I need to be more of this and life's going to have this. And the surrendering to that was kind of like, oh, wow, I get it. There's this idea still, but with this now, and let's see how those two work together. You know, and so that calling and that drive was still there, but I could feel a little bit more of, you know, even with doing this now, is that there's an effortlessness about it rather than that constant, what is it, you know, try and work it out. Are you aware of that? And what is it that drives you? What is it you're for? In this life, you know, you mentioned about sort of like, okay, I couldn't buy into the system. What What is it you do buy into? And is that part of the unfolding of you as you go? Do you think those two go hand in hand? Yeah, it's an unfolding. I become aware of, it can even happen through illness, physical illness or relationship illness or something in my life that doesn't feel good. Mm. Because when a next unfolding is denied, it will make you sick in some way it'll ask more and more loudly for attention. That's interesting. And then it'll come into awareness. It'll be put into your awareness in some way. Maybe sometimes you might need help seeing it. That's what friends or a therapist or a plant medicine is, is for. Like it can show you the unconscious power that had been governing you and making you make choices that don't feel good anymore. So it could be something as simple as like a habit of bragging that 
could be very subtle, you know, like kind of working in a certain reference in a conversation, you know, and like, and it kind of works and people are impressed, but yes, like I just don't feel good anymore doing that. And I don't really want to impress people because then they're seeing that and they're not really seeing me like this awareness might develop over time. And at that point, it's not like, okay, bragging is bad and I won't do it so that people will admire me for not bragging. That's yeah. actually the kind of bragging. It's, it's, the more same, like, it's the same problem. Same problem, but, right. But exactly, yeah. Right. Yeah. It's more like, that doesn't feel good anymore. And maybe I try out not eating the cake. Like I try out not bragging. I try out trusting that I don't have to control the social situation. What will happen if I don't control it? Let me try eating something else. Let me try making a different choice and see how it feels and see what the results are. You know, here we are in this wonderland of life, this where you can do anything you want. Like we have like all of these fantastic menu items available. Like you can try anything you want. You can be anything you want. You can make any choice you want. Like, yeah, let's try some some dishes we haven't tried before, especially when the old ones don't taste good. What's happening, I find, you know, when I was when I was younger and I was very single-minded and I was on this image-based trek, you know, I could picture myself being down that route. I used to do the odd you know, interview after a game and my head was telling me, humble, you've got to be humble. It's part of the deal of being loved is you've got to be humble. Uh-huh. I'd walk away from interviews celebrating how humble I was. Yeah. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like kind of go, I am the most humble guy out there. And you're sort of looking at it thinking it's bizarre, you know, like, just the fact we convince ourselves that I'm not doing it, but you're actually doing it for the very reason you think you're not doing it. Right. It's it's almost tied you know, in There's there. something endearing about people who don't try to be humble. Like Usain Bolt, <laughs> yeah. for example. Yeah. Usain Bolt. Yeah. He was yeah. like, yep, I'm the greatest, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, that other thing of being like, I'm the greatest. Now, it's beautiful to see someone just put it out yeah. there and know that you could still fall over right. or or lose, but still put it out there anyway. It's inspiring, I think, to see someone say like, well, I almost know that if that does happen, I'll still get back up and I'll do this again right. before the next one because I still believe I'm the greatest at what I do and no one could be better than being me. I'm interested, you know, in terms of how you relate to other people. I find that, you know, when I was in that image-based thing, God knows what it was like talking to me. Like you mentioned the stage show, it was my character just trying to get something across. It had nothing to do with me. And, you know, but now I find conversationally, I'm almost like everything's of interest. So much more is of interest. I'm not trying to get anything out of it. What's, what's your world look like of interactions? I mean, let's face it, you're, you're all over podcasts and you're here and then interact. So I imagine you must meet a lot of people in a lot of different areas. Yeah, although in the, you know, post-COVID era, I'm not in as many in-person events. Although those are starting to happen more now. You know, I, I walk into these events and I have a certain reputation and command a certain amount of respect. And I had a habit before called ambition. And, you know, it wasn't necessarily so personal. It was all very much about the messages I carry and the work that I do. And of course, I want to serve those. And those are served by, you know, bringing attention to myself so that I can be the keynote speaker at the next conference or something like that. Yeah. Um, like I had a kind of ambition. And that 
became a habit of kind of, I mean, it could have been just like always seeking the opportunity or trying to figure out who in a group might be a ticket to more visibility, you know, that kind of thing. That habit was initially pretty unconscious and it became conscious as it no longer felt very good. And I just stopped caring. Wow. Like I stopped being ambitious. I'm not entirely sure why, but it thrusts me into this unfamiliar territory where now I go to events and I'm like, I'm happy to say nothing. You know, I'm happy to just have like conversations in, on the side with people because I'm looking at, okay, when I'm not serving that master, then what am I serving by my presence and by my words? It's something less visible. So that's kind of what I've become more oriented to. That's, that's really cool as well. I mean, just becoming aware of the fact as well that I feel anyway that you cross paths with people and that person's in your space and you're speaking to them is that to deny that moment and that importance for the sake of, oh, but I'm speaking to a thousand in 10 minutes. So can you just uh, do one whilst I get ready for that? Right. Or you're not important because yeah. you're not right. But, but maybe you are important. And yeah. like maybe in 5,000 years, if my soul surveys the landscape, it will be evident that the most important thing I did was a conversation with one or like a child that I played with while everybody else was networking. Yeah. Like maybe that had the biggest effect because that child, you know, grew up to, I mean, who knows? We don't know how this world works. Yeah. <laughs> I completely agree. That's beautiful. Charles, thanks so much. I've picked your brains and it's been brilliant just to have a proper far side chat about just anything and everything. And, it, and it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's one of the most amazing things just to finish off is just hearing you, it's what inspiring for me is you say that you're willing to sit there and just say nothing. And you've done this during the interview. For me, I still have the urge to achieve. And this has become a kind of anti-achievement podcast, but in a way, well, not an anti-achievement, but you know, like away from that urge, but I can still feel, you know, that that can still creep in there. And to hear someone so at ease with just being able to say, you know, I'm happy for everyone to talk and I'll just find my space. I take that as a massive inspiration. Yeah. And it's not because I've, you know, given up. No, absolutely not. Yeah. It's sensing a higher level of effectiveness. Exactly. Maybe only I know. Yeah. <laughs> and that's yeah. all that matters. It's just so big. Yeah. Beautiful. Hey, listen, thanks for your yeah. time. I know you're, you're a busy man, but uh, yeah, couldn't uh, be more thankful for just being able to pick those brains of yours. And, and uh, yeah, wish you good luck with everything you're doing, mate. And uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, Johnny. Really enjoyed meeting you. So that's it for another episode of I Am. It's brilliant to be sharing this unfolding experience with you all. If you'd like to get in touch with either me or the guest, then all the information you need is in the show notes. I welcome all and any feedback. I really want all of you to have a hand in guiding the feel of this show and the path of the conversation as well. So just keep them coming in. And until next time, I'm Johnny Wilkinson, and this has been I Am. This show is brought to you by Max Creative, the executive producer is Megan Hill-Smith. Assistant producer is Alex Macy. Before I go, I want to say a final thank you to the sponsors of today's podcast, Vitality. For me, the secret to a happy and healthy life is about living consciously. And when we can align those little things we do and decisions we make every day with the life we really want to live, 
it really makes a difference, which is when the team over at Vitality comes in. Their comprehensive cover enables us all to live a happier, healthier life, whether it's through offering discounts on gym memberships at Virgin Active, Nuffield Health or Pure Gym, or on activity trackers from Garmin, Polar and Samsung. For me, I've been an ambassador with Vitality for several years now, and undoubtedly the feeling of true support when someone cares about you and your health and your quality of life, it makes a massive difference. So you can take the small steps to make the meaningful changes. Head to vitality.co.uk for more information. Terms and conditions apply.